Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest today is Andy Dessler. Andy's a great climate scientist, and besides that, he's an interesting one. He's done important research on a wide range of topics in the field, but he's also a public figure and an active participant in the broader conversation on climate. So all of that makes for the kind of conversation that we like to have here, and I was very happy to have this opportunity to talk to Andy. Andy and I are more or less contemporaries, and we have more in common than that. We both started out working in the stratosphere on topics related to the ozone problem. In fact, the first scientific seminar I went to as a new graduate student in the early 90s was given by Andy right after his own thesis defense. So this was a conversation between two people who understand each other pretty well. Anyway, the ozone problem was more or less solved by the time Andy was a postdoc, and so wanting to be where the action was, he switched and started working on tropospheric water vapor, and from there he got into climate change. And from there, this continues to be a theme in Andy's research. He works on something for a while, but when he senses it's tapped out, he changes direction, and he's done this a few times. Perhaps all scientists do this, but Andy's done it more consciously and maybe more often than others. Something I hadn't remembered about Andy until we spoke, but that came up again and again, was that his father was an academic in an immediately adjacent field to ours. Andy's dad worked in space physics, which, like the various earth sciences, is a section of the American Geophysical Union, of which Andy's dad was an active and influential member back in the day. So this was particularly resonant given that we recorded this interview in person at the AGU fall meeting in New Orleans. Shout out and thanks to AGU for facilitating that. And Andy describes how his career was strongly influenced at many critical junctures, including his decision about where to go to grad school by his dad. So this keeps with a the little theme of parents and children that we seem to have this season on Deep Convection. At least as much as for his scientific research, Andy stands out for his public engagement. For many years, he's been writing and speaking to broad audiences about climate. He's written blogs, op-eds, books, and he's active on social media. He hasn't shied away from the political at all, despite having told himself early in his career that he would. So we talk about how that happened, including the time Andy spent early in his career at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. In the last couple of years, Andy's research has moved into climate impacts. He's studying the Texas power grid, for example, and generally looking for ways to understand the risks due to extreme weather events and climate change and to contribute to climate adaptation. Making this shift at this point in time and in our careers is another thing he and I have in common, and it was great to talk with him about that. Andy's active and engaged in many different ways in different aspects of the climate problem, both as a scientific researcher and as a public intellectual. He's also really good at talking, which is important in a podcast. So our conversation was stimulating and substantive and also a lot of fun. So I'm happy to bring you my conversation with Andy Dessler. Hi, Andy. Here we are live at AGU. <laughs> we are in a small, hot room. I have to say, if, if this room is any indication, climate change is not going to be pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we turned off the hot lights, but um, thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's a real honor. Yeah. Well, well, that is all mine. And um, let's start with your biography. 
Where does Andy Dessel come from? All right. So I think if you want to understand kind of my trajectory, you have to start with my father. So my mm. father grew up in California during the Depression. And, um, he, you know, he had no idea what he wanted to do with his life. And um, basically, after he got fired from many jobs, after he graduated from high school, his mother said, you know, you got to get out of the house. So he joined the Navy. And this was right after World War II. So 1946, he enters the Navy. And they give you tests when you enter the Navy. Mm. And he scored really high on technical capabilities. So they sent him to electronics school. Mm. And sort of long story short, he became a radar technician. And he really liked it. And he said, you know, I want to go to college to study this. Where do you go? And they said, uh, Caltech. And so wow. uh, at the time, to get to Caltech, you basically they sent you a test. So he did it while he was on the destroyer. It was proctored by an officer. He got into Caltech. Uh -huh. And the GI Bill basically paid for four years of college. All his books, he had a little money left over, he says. And then he got a PhD in physics from Duke. And then he went to work for Lockheed Space Services the year before Sputnik launched. So I always tell wow. him he's the luckiest <laughs> academic in the world to get into space science right before <laughs> Sputnik. And so he really rode the wave of space physics for, uh, you know, he, tell, he, he, tell, he likes to tell me about how much money there was. You know, he would be flying on a plane to a uh, meeting and he would write a proposal on the plane, yeah. hand it to the secretary when he gets back. She would type it up, he'd submit it, and he'd get 50K, you know, from NASA. You know, Which have, was a lot. Oh, that was a huge <laughs> amount then. And he tells me that sometimes program managers would call him and say, hey, I've got money, can you spend it? Yeah. And, um, you know, it was, it was a different world then. He always thought I would basically do what he did. You know, physics is the best job in the world, he thought. Doing research was the best job in the world. I mean, he loved it. He said, you know, this is what you're going to do. So I think from the time I was very young, you know, I would go to meetings with him. I met Werner von Braun in 1969 when I was six <laughs> years old. Wow. You know, I was sort of steeped in the culture of science. And so I think if you met me when I was six, you would not be surprised that this is what I'm doing now, just because I was always... It was just sort of expected that I'd, you know, I'd go to college, then I'd get a PhD in science, and I'd be a faculty member somewhere. Uh, and I think for a lot of kids, that's terrible because they don't, you know, that's not what they want to do. Yeah. It puts enormous pressure on them. But in my case, you know, it worked out well for me. I mean, I'm very happy. I do think yeah. being an academic is the best job in the world. And um, I am the exception to perhaps the rule that you don't want to put too much pressure. You don't want to decide what your kids are going to do. Yeah, so a few things like, first of all, there there's actually a lot of academics who are kids of academics. I guess I had learned at some point that you were one of them, but I forgot that fact. But yeah, I, like some people rebel and some people don't. Are you right. the, do you have brothers and sisters? Are you the? I do. I have two and, sisters. And, and where brother. are you in the order of? I'm the youngest. Oh, okay. I thought the like cliche is it's the oldest who like follows in the parents and then the middle one. I don't know. Anyway, there's some, there's some theories about that. Did your dad, did he become an academic? Then? Yeah, so he, uh, yeah, so I said he was the luckiest person in the world as far as academics go. So in the early 60s, he went to Rice. He actually talked to the president of Rice and said, you need to form a space physics department. He was hired, uh, he was probably 33. He was hired to form the department. Wow. And so he was the chair of the department. He hired wow. all the faculty and it was in Houston. So a lot of this was because the space program was, you know, being built up in Houston uh, for manned space flights. So this is a few years after Kennedy's famous 
we choose to send a man to the moon or return him in this decade, you know, right. whatever the quote is. Like I said, he really rode the wave and he, w- he would go on visits to NASA headquarters. He met with James Webb about getting money for Rice and the program there because, you know, they were trying to figure out how do they build up the infrastructure to send people to the moon. It's just it's just unimaginable kind of academics at that time when, you know, everybody who graduated a PhD got a faculty job, basically. There were like jobs quickly, quickly. I mean, every, I mean, the, the field was exponentially expanding and there were not a lot of faculty, so they weren't producing a lot of students. So if you did get a PhD, there yeah. were lots of jobs available. It's just unimaginable compared to today. And well, yeah, I mean, you know, so I've heard stories this time and I think at least the physical sciences were this way to some degree. But space, yeah, must have been even more so. But what was his actual science? So he did magnetospheric physics. So oh, he was okay. an AGU member. I mean, he wow. was, um, yeah. you know, editor of GRL and JGR, and he was a McIlwain wow. winner. So he was the second McIlwain winner in 1963 or 64. Wow. So you really are like the apple who didn't fall far. Oh, from yeah. You. Here no, we are at AGU. <laughs> well, and, and I'll continue this. I'll continue this thread. I went to school in Houston, and then um, I went to Rice as an undergrad and I studied physics, you know, that's what was kind of expected of me. And wait, I wait, wait, hold on. Did you have classes from your dad? Please. I did. I did not. So <laughs> what, uh, so uh, my father actually was gone the four years I was at Rice. He took a job as the director of the space science lab at Marshall. Okay. So from 1982 to 1986, when I was an undergrad, uh, he was gone. So it's actually kind of weird that just those exact four years, we did not overlap at all, but all, all of his, um, colleagues knew me. So I knew everybody because they'd been over our house and, you know, uh-huh. and I remember, uh, and so, so there are all these amusing stories about him interfering with my education from <laughs> afar. Like there was once I went to go see my advisor, Steve Baker, and he said, are you having fun? I said, yeah, I'm having a great time. You know, college is fantastic. And so I talked to my dad and he said, what did Steve Baker tell you? I said, he asked me if I was having fun. And the next time I went to go see Steve, it's like, I don't know if you're working hard enough. You need to, so clearly (laughs) he calls Steve and goes, don't tell my son to have fun. He should be working. Uh, I did work really hard. I have to say I was, I worked incredibly hard. Rice, there are a lot of really smart people there and to, to compete. It's hard. And I have to say, I was furious when I later found out that not everybody works hard as an undergrad. I mean, we like I never went out on Thursday because we always had physics homework due on Friday. Uh So we would always be up late doing physics homework. I I mean, I think it served me well in the long run. But at the time, I remember being really angry that other people were out having fun. So at the end of at the end of my undergrad, I was really burned out. I mean, I really worked hard. Like I graduated in four years. And that requires some semesters you're taking six courses and it Mm. was really hard. And and at the end, I was really sick of school. And I think Mm. I was at this kind of inflection point where my life actually could have gone in a number of different directions. And so I applied for and got a job working for an investment bank on Wall Street. So I worked for- How'd your dad feel about that? Uh, you know, he said he said uh, it would be an adventure. I think he, he was right. I mean, I think he looked at it and said, it looks really interesting. And did you care what he said about it? I don't remember that whether he what he said would have had a big influence on me at that point because I was really tired of school. I, yeah, I applied yeah. for some graduate schools. I think I got into a few. I don't really remember which one. I know I did not get into Stanford because I wrote in there that I want to work with Steve Chu, uh-huh. and I got turned down. And, and luckily, his career hasn't gone anywhere. <laughs> yeah, you know, he won the. This Nobel. is in physics. In I physics, yeah, the yeah, Stanford yeah. physics. No, I mean department. the lesson there is maybe it shouldn't be overly specific in your application. Yeah. sometimes. <laughs> That's right. So, um, uh, no, Steve Chu's had a good career since uh, since he turned me down. Well, sure, so. you had good instincts, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was hired by the first Boston Corporation. They don't exist anymore. They merged mm. with Credit Suisse. 
Mm. But uh, at the time, it was one of the premier investment banks. So I was hired in this two-year analyst program. So they hired people straight out of undergrad. People who have no knowledge of finance. You actually went through a training program. They hired you for two years. And I was hired by the Houston office to spend a year in New York and then spend a year in Houston. Mm. In fact, they may have hired me to spend a third year, two years in Houston, one year in New York, two years in Houston. I left after two years, though. Um, and, and I have to say, the job, was it was a fantastic job for about the first year because, you know, I knew nothing about finance. You know, I could do data analysis. I knew a lot about math. And finance is a lot of learning the jargon and learning some concepts like discounting, which I, I teach in my climate courses because it's important yeah. for understanding these trade-offs. But so I learned a huge amount the first year. And then after the first year, you're just doing the same thing. Yeah. You know, it's like things don't change. And, and what I realized yeah. very quickly is I'm not motivated to make money. That, 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 that was a fantastic job if you want to be rich. Yeah. But if you want to have a job where you go into in the, in the morning and learn new things, it's not a good job. Right. Because you're basically, you become extremely valuable to them when you can just turn the crank, where they can say, here's a company, I want you to value it. You know exactly how to do it. Yeah. And you do it. And that gets kind of boring reasonably quickly. And uh, and so I, I kind of saw, I said, this is not the job for me, that I'd rather have an interesting job than make a lot of money. I have to say, that was an incredibly valuable insight, because if I hadn't done that, I think I would look at these jobs where people make huge amounts of money, and I'd say I'd be really jealous of them, but I'm not because I kind of know yeah. that that's not what I would want to have done. That that I'd much rather right. have a job where I get to go in and think about interesting problems and look at data and write code and talk to people, and um, you know that's what I want to do. And so uh, I told my father this was 1987. I said I do not want to do this. I think I want to go back to graduate school. And he said you should do the environment. He was, the, he was the editor of GRL at the time, and he had worked hard to get all of the ozone hole papers into GRL. So if you go back to the 80s oh. and you look at the ozone hole papers, they're all in GRL. And he oh. had, and so he knew all those people. I see. And he said, this wow. is the field that's going to go into it. And it wasn't climate, but it was, it was just kind of this general idea that the environment is a field. And he said, I know somebody. Uh, Jim Anderson, you should call him. Wow. And he goes, you know, this guy's doing really good work. Uh, just repeat how influential my father was and where I am. Yeah. Uh, and so I emailed Jim and, you know, um, I ended up working with Jim at, uh, in his lab at Harvard. Uh, you know, Jim was sort of the world expert at making these measurements of radicals at the part per trillion level, which yeah. is really hard to do. And, and, you know, if you look at the field, essentially it's his students are all the ones that are that are doing that today. Right. And it, well, he himself is still around, right? But. Yeah. No. Yeah. I shouldn't. I shouldn't make it sound like it's past tense. No. He's still out there and he's still flying, right. involved in field missions, and he's working on this idea of convection, injecting water in the stratosphere. I think yeah. we, we could talk about that if you want. Um, yeah. Well, let's I'm, get I'm not to sold that. on it. Just for a minute, like I think the part you said about what you learned from that finance job is really important. A couple things. One is the insight that you're not learning new things every day. I mean, academia is kind of designed to be the job where you do that and almost no other job is. So it's not unique to finance. I mean, I had a similar experience in a different field. And the other thing is just having had some experience in the world before you go to grad school, not everybody has it. And some people are academics are focused and do, you know, never suffer for not having done that. But for many of us, I think, you know, you see people complaining about the difficulties of, of an academic life and there's plenty of them and there's plenty of annoying things and a lot of things get harder every year but 
a lot of the things that are annoying about it are just as annoying or more annoying anywhere else. And if you've never been anywhere else, it's easy to idealize like life outside of right, academia. Yeah. And it's good to have had some experience and know that. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> I, I always advise students if they don't know what they want to do to take time off. I am quite convinced that I would never have made it through grad school if I had gone straight in because I was so tired of school. I mean, I would get headaches when I was studying just because I was burned out. And taking time off really rejuvenated me. And when I went back, I appreciated it. It's like, this is That's much right. better than working That's working right. eight to five and wearing a suit every day. And That's right. Having the managing directors call you at, at 8 p.m. on a Saturday because they just there's a deal breaking <laughs> and you need to come into the office. Right. And- a lot of graduate students have, at some point in their studies, like a low point where they get kind of depressed and they think, do I really want to be here? Yeah. Is this the right life commitment for me? And it's good if you've gotten a little bit of that out of your system beforehand. So you have some yeah. certainty about it. Like, yeah, no, I never felt that way. I mean, in grad school is always, you know, this is what I want to do. And so I, th- I think I had a happier graduate career because I had kind of that two-year period where I found something I didn't want to do. Yeah. So, okay, so your time at Harvard, can we talk about not just your experience at Harvard per se, but also this historical moment of the ozone hole and stratospheric research. Because I came into this field exactly at the tail end of it, a few years behind you. And that I think that few years made a difference because by the time I was in, it was kind of solved and kind yeah. of already winding down. But it was still not over. And it was a kind of a unique moment of like a really focused community, like like a lot of people, but much fewer people than are working on global warming now. And there was all these meetings where people were really just trying to solve. It was like an intense thing of a community really focused on the same problem, sometimes doing redundant things, but in slightly different ways, in a way that was really effective. And it also connected to policy in a way that I think the field has struggled to replicate that success since. And the politics has, you know, has deteriorated. But it was... So I just want to hear your reflections on that. Yeah, no, I think... uh, And, And especially... Because Anderson's groups and work was so critical to right, what right. happened. Yeah, no, Jim is the one who published the, in science at least, they call the smoking gun paper, where he really showed the evolving anti-correlation between chlorine monoxide, which comes from fluorocarbons, and ozone being depleted. That paper really showed those fluorocarbons that were causing the ozone hole. Um, well, wait, so can we actually, can we do take back up and do the just like the brief bullet points of the history? So like 84? Five, I think, is when the, yeah, the so British the Farman, Antarctic Survey yeah, first. Yeah, the Farman et al. paper yeah, was 85. So if you want to go back even further, so in the early 70s, you have the um, Molina and Rowland paper that right. really showed that fluorocarbons are super stable molecules, which is why they're good because they don't corrode equipment and they don't kill people. But that's bad because they're also not oxidized in the troposphere. So the only thing that can really destroy them, uh, they point out the only way they can destroy them is you can get into the stratosphere. And once there, there were catalytic cycles that would then destroy ozone. And yeah. and so they went on this very long, you know, is a decade-long negotiation to basically phase out those fluorocarbons. And and. Right at the end of that, they discovered the ozone hole. So right. So, the, but so Molina Rowland's work was in a sense theoretical. That's I mean, right. they, I mean, they that's had right. lab measurements, but it, no, that's absolutely right. It was before before there was any observation of ozone depletion. That's right. right. So then, in '85, people see it, and it's like, wow, you know. And then I think eight, they say they saw it on satellite data a couple of years later. Yeah. So it turns out that, uh, and I hope I get all the details of this story right, that. The people at Goddard who had TOMS data, so TOMS is an, a satellite instrument that measures column ozone, that they were looking at it because it was flagged as bad right. data because there was so little ozone there. And, they, right. and, and the, the instrument flagged it as bad, and so they were looking at it. And I think if 
Farman et al. had not published it within a few years, the Tom's group would have realized this was going on. So, so Farman et al. was in Antarctica, their ground base. That's right. That's right. They had right, Dobson right. instruments. So this is so yeah, and, the satellite sees it, says that can't be right. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And 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 you know, the first thing you do if you're a scientist is uh, my measurement's wrong or my calculation is wrong. You know, that's right. always your default position. It's like, that's weird. And, and and you just assume, okay, well, there's something wrong with our retrieval algorithm or that. And so they were working on trying to figure out what was wrong. And I think that they would have figured out it was real. But once the Farm and All paper came out, they went back into the day and said, oh, so this is real. And then yeah. they quickly confirmed sort of the spatial extent of the ozone right. hole. And then within a year or two, so the Montreal Protocol is 1987, um, Amazingly the, fast, yeah. It, well, they were working on it. So it wasn't the case that, that they started after the ozone hole. They had been working on it. And I think it's important to understand that it would be unthinkable today, but they were working on phasing out this chemical for which no observational evidence that it was actually harming the climate existed. But uh-huh. the scientists were sure. It's like, you know, this is going to uh-huh. happen. The, the, it's not that complicated. You know, we can we can measure chlorine in the stratosphere. Yeah. Uh, and and we understand the photochemistry of these molecules. Well, but the details weren't right, though. I mean, the whole thing about the polar stratosphere of clouds, they didn't understand that until it happened. That's yet. right. That's right. There were a lot of things they didn't understand. but And they predicted most of the ozone loss would be at high altitudes and mid-latitudes. And it might take 100 years to lose significant amounts of ozone. But right. th- they got the sign right. Yeah. Uh, and, and they understood that there was something there. And I think... It's an example of, of what the world should be doing, which is you take, you know, you're risk averse when it comes to these things that life on the planet relies on. You know, life on the planet relies on the ozone layer. Mm. If there's any chance you're going to destroy it, you want to take action if you can. And they could. And so the world signed the Montreal Protocol. So, okay. So Moline and Roland predicted in the 70s. Farman et al. sees it in 85, and the Montreal Protocol is signed 87, and you start graduate school 88. 88. So, so it's really yeah. – and, you know, and, and we should say that, like, the study of the stratosphere in the field of meteorology was a pretty small subfield, right, up until that point. And yeah, then there was, right. And then there was a boom, right, a, suddenly a big – Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's – compared to the climate field, it was always small, but uh, there certainly was an expansion – uh, once people recognize that, especially after the ozone hole, where, as, as you pointed out, uh, the, the chemistry didn't work out. The, the mechanisms that uh, Molina and Sherwood and everyone else talked about, this gas phase catalysis was clearly not happening. That You could, couldn't right. explain the ozone hole with that. So there, there was obviously something else going on. Right. People kind of flooded into the field. You know, scientists, they love a good problem. You know, if you say this is a big uncertainty, people will attack it. Well, but also their money appeared. I mean, you know, so Jim Anderson built that whole group because NASA flew all those aircraft experiments yeah, to figure out right. what was going on. And that stuff funded, it funded modeling work. It funded a whole lot of stuff. My my PhD was funded by that as many, many others were. Right. So that was, that was yeah, part of Yeah, that's it. right. So the, obviously you can't do science without funding uh, and the funding goes where the good problems are but but you know people i think people really attacked that because it was such an interesting problem and it moved so fast because people were like really focused on the same questions it wasn't like the typical academic thing of people kind of do what their advisor did it was like a really um i just remember being at some of those meetings and yeah. just feeling this kind of group energy you know it was competitive but it was also yeah. And there were some disagreements about things, but, but, and, you know, the problems got solved really fast. So the basic, you know, the thing you're describing about the gas phase catalysis, if I could, like, what they figured out was that there were critical reactions happening on the ice clouds that form in the stratosphere. So the stratosphere has almost no water, has basically no clouds, 
But in winter over the poles where it gets cold enough, there are these little wispy clouds and those were critical to the chemistry that destroyed ozone. And so they had to figure out a whole bunch of stuff about that. Actually, this Molina also yeah. did critical work on that. Although I think, the well, I don't know, the Nobel Prize is probably for all of it, but especially the 70s stuff. Right, yeah, I think it was mainly the 70s stuff. But he, he did work out the dimer reaction, right. uh, CLO plus CLO. And the Anderson group that you were in built all those instruments that flew on the NASA ER-2, which was the refurbished U-2 right, spy yeah. plane. That, that um, Did you go on any of those field campaigns? Um, I didn't go on any of the polar missions, but I did go on a few um, f- stratospheric photochemistry missions in the early yeah. 90s. Um, there was one called Spade, which flew out of NASA Ames. Yeah. And then I went to uh, Fiji on a oh, mission wow. that actually Ramanathan was trying to test his thermostat hypothesis. I don't know if you remember that. I do the remember that. The thermostat hypothesis. He was going to test that. So he called Jim up and said, can you fly your water and ozone instruments on the ER-2. So we went mm. and spent uh, two months in Fiji. And so, yeah, so I went on a few of those missions. And, and what was your thesis? Oh, I kind of remember, but yeah, what was you, what you should it say? Was, uh, you? Ozo- basically, it was uh, measuring ozone and water in the stratosphere. So when I was there, I didn't really build an instrument, but I took over uh, the, the existing ozone instrument. Uh, it was designed for flying on a balloon. We modified it to fly on the ER-2. Uh-huh. And then we also, um, I also worked on um, the water vapor instrument, which flew in the nose of the ER-2. And that was essentially a modified, uh, you know, Paul Wenberg had his Hawks instrument. And uh-huh. we essentially took the guts of that. Hawks being? Oh, uh, uh, uh-huh. H- uh, HO2, OH, yeah. and HO2. Very short-lived reactive yeah. species that are present in very, very small amounts. Yeah, I mean, amounts. part per trillion. Yes, levels. these are really diff- – oh, these are all really hard measurements to make. That's why it yeah. was such a – Yeah, I have to yeah. say, before Jim measured it, I think there were a lot of people that thought they'll never measure hawks. And, you know, he measured it with a signal to noise of 10 to the third. And, I mean, it's really an incredibly – a yeah. tour de force measurement. You know, Paul's done well since then. So Yeah, <laughs> but even water in the stratosphere is pretty hard. Yeah, not compared to that, but it's a few parts per million. And and so if you have any kind of contamination, any outgassing from the walls or anything like that, it can really mess your instrument up. And and there were a bunch of instruments on the ER-2, and they disagreed by about a part per million. And it took them years to figure that out. Well, and a part per million doesn't sound big, but how much there is yeah, is like five. So yeah, it's, so that's 20%. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So, th- so the, the most important thing I learned at Harvard, besides how to do research, I'd say it was really a fantastic group. I never talked to Jim. I probably spent a total of four or five hours talking to them over five and a half years. But the rest of the group was so good. Uh, I mean, just the other graduate students are really good, the postdocs, the staff. That That's the people you talk to. I mean, that's who I really learned how yeah. to do research. And Jim was there. He was like the rudder. And so he would come up with these these bold statements about what was important. So it was really, I'd say it was a fantastic place to be, even though – I don't feel like I didn't talk to him very much, but you know, you don't in a, in a group like that, you don't have to talk to him. Well, there's a lot of brilliant people. So the story I want to tell is that when I arrived at graduate school at MIT in the fall of 1993, because I was doing stratospheric meteorology, so the the, the fluid dynamics of the stratosphere, and my advisor Alan Plum was big in that. But he was funded by all those aircraft campaigns, and he was involved in them, and he knew you know Anderson and all the other people. So I knew that I should pay attention to what was going on at Harvard. So it was kind of like Alan was doing dynamics and Harvard was the place for the chemistry, you know, a couple stops away on the on the T, the subway line. So I went to one of the seminars at Harvard. And I think this was the first seminar of my career as a graduate student. And it was your, I guess not thesis defense, because the defense was like a private thing, but it was sort of the same talk that you gave the week after or whatever it was. And um, 
you know, I was new, so I didn't understand the signs very well. But, you know, you gave it, but you explained it clearly. And I felt like I was kind of getting it and it all made sense. But the audience gave you such a hard time. Like, I remember <laughs> just thinking, these people are animals. Like, they seemed almost to be out to get you in a kind of conscious way. And you didn't seem that phased by it. It seemed like there was some sort of dynamic that had been probably like, like it wasn't a new, but I, it stuck in my mind. I think in, in later years, I think I've talked to Paul Wenberg and maybe some of the others and said this and they said, oh yeah, we just wanted to give Andy a hard time or something like that. But I just wonder if you, if you yeah. remember that. And yeah, like, I do remember <laughs> that, but I don't remember getting a hard time. I think that was pretty much, you know, that was just, an, you know, not terrible. It was Tuesday, you know, it was just a regular, <laughs> regular day in that group. I mean, we hassled each other a lot like graduate students do. So I think they, you know, because it was kind of my victory lap after your thesis defense and stuff like that, they were going to take a little air out of the, out of the balloon. <laughs> right. so. Well, and I should say, I mean, I think the people who were giving you a hard time were mostly like postdocs and young research yeah. scientists in the lab, all of whom have become like, you know, famous top leaders in the field. Yeah, no, it's you know, amazing how, how well, I have to say, <laughs> one of the things I now look back on, because at the time I thought, you know, I'm not going to make it in this field. The, you know, the, the rest of the field is so smart. And, and you realize that not everybody is as smart as the other students in my group. If everyone was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have made it as an academic that those, it was a, it was a uniquely, talented group of people that were in the Anderson group and, and in the other groups, you know, Steve Wofsey's group and, you know, Daniel Jacob, he was an assistant yeah, professor then. Right. He and, was doing modeling. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and Brian Farrell. And it was really, and Mike McElroy. I mean, it was an unbelievably good group of people and, and you can't really compare yourself to them because not everybody in the field is, is as, you know, productive and smart as those people, which is yeah. good for, luckily for me. But that, so that's all true. But I think, you know, I, I have the same high opinion of all those people as you do, but also, you know, since you started with your dad in the sixties and how, you know, how much of a boom time it was, I think this wasn't that quite, but it was like a mini analog of it in a way that maybe we haven't quite seen since just because those on hold was such a compelling thing and everything moved so fast and it was well funded and it was like, a, you know, an exciting period of rapid progress. Yeah, and I, I think the, the time scale over which the research sort of rose and then decayed was short enough that a lot of people couldn't move into the field, which is not the case of climate. Right. You know, climate has been going on for decades. So a lot of people have moved in the field and that makes it a lot more competitive for funding. Yeah. Because like I mean, that. because by the, by the late nineties, when I graduated a few years after you, it was already, you could already see that. Oh was, yeah. That it was kind of over. Yeah. So, so let me sort of pick up in grad school. And I said that, you know, one of the things I learned is how to do research uh, in the Anderson group. I say it was really a great place. The other thing I learned is that I, I hate lab work. I, I joke with uh, Tom Hanisco, who was a postdoc there now at Goddard, that uh, I could never find my uh, 764 Allen wrench. That was like the bane <laughs> of my existence. He'd be looking for me. It's like, I cannot find the 764 Allen wrench, which every screw on the ozone instrument was a 764. <laughs> and you couldn't find it. You'd spend 20 minutes looking for it. And what I realized <laughs> is that I would rather spend 20 minutes looking for a bug in code than spend 20 minutes looking for my Allen wrench. <laughs> that it's just, you know, it's, it, and not everybody is like that. But for me, I just hated that. And so I, I decided that when I graduated and when I went to go work for a postdoc, I was not going to do any lab work. Lab work was done. And so um, I was at an AGU meeting. It's probably around, this was in the early 90s. So a couple of years from graduation, and I went to an AGU meeting. It's kind of weird. I think back in this, I knew nobody. 
you go to the AGU meeting, it's like, you know, you didn't know friends, you didn't didn't see anything. Now, the one thing that was true, and this was kind of magical in a way, is I knew the names of people because I'd read their papers. So you'd go to a yeah. session and someone would get up and like, oh, I've read their papers. You'd say, oh, that's what they look like because you had no idea what they yeah. looked like. And, you know, so obviously, like I'd read Jim Holton's book, but I didn't know what Jim Holton looked like. I assumed he yeah. looked like Gandalf. Right. You know, long, long beard, you know, deep voice saying things about, you know, di- stratospheric meteorology. And then you meet him and he's completely different. It was, re- it was really, it's really neat to meet the people who are kind of, you know, yeah. your heroes because, you know, you read the stuff, you really like it. You think, oh, these people really, that's yeah. really a great paper. And uh, as at an AGU meeting and I saw Rich Stolarski. So that was a name that I had seen. So he and Ralph Cicerone were the people who really um, first identified chlorine catalysis as being an important for ozone. Uh. Uh, and this was right before Molina and Rowland. So Molina and Rowland kind of took the Stolarski, uh, Cicerone and Stolarski stuff and um, used it with their knowledge of what would happen to fluorocarbon. So I just walked up to him and introduced myself. And he knew my father, so that became wow. a conversation. Uh, and he invited me to go to lunch with all the, So he was at Goddard. He invited me to go to lunch yeah. with all the other Goddard people. And I think my memory of this is right. I've actually emailed him about this. And he, I think he said this was about right. And I thought this is really seems like a good group. This was at the Baltimore AGU meeting. Mm. So this is a meeting in Baltimore. So there's a giant Goddard contingent there. And so, um, you know, Goddard is, was one of the premier places for ozone chemistry, uh, modeling, modeling of ozone chemistry. And so I, because I didn't want to do lab work, I thought, well, that would be a really good place. Plus, they were working on a lot of URs data. So URs is a satellite that go, it was originally supposed to launch in the, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I think if it had, it would have figured all of the stuff that the ER2, those flight missions did, because it was measuring CLO and chlorine nitrate and all the yeah, important species. I mean, in-situ measurement, measurement's always good, but... Yeah, but yeah. They, they would have, the in-situ measurements would have been second after that. Yeah. But it was delayed for several years. It launched in 91. Right. And the data, unlike today, where the data comes out within a few months, they start releasing data. Uh, it was years before they got the mm. algorithms working. And so I ended up going to Goddard. Uh, I, I, I distinctly remember walking up to Mark Schoberl, uh, who is the branch head of the atmospheric chemistry and dynamics branch, what was what used to be 916 at Goddard, and saying, oh, I think I said, uh, uh, my father says he knows you. <laughs> and, and then I say, you know, I work for Jim Anderson. I'm just wondering if you have any postdocs. And he says, go talk to Ann Douglas. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I went to talk to Ann Douglas, and she ended up being my postdoc advisor while I was at Goddard. And so, yeah, so I, I, in 94, April of 94, I went to Greenbelt, Maryland, or I lived in what was then Rockville, now North Bethesda. And I started working at Goddard and doing basically ozone uh, data analysis of the flight missions and of URs data. And, uh-huh. you know, we didn't have any big chemistry models at the time, but there were sort of chemistry box models that people were running. So we incorporated some of them. Yeah. Okay. So, so Goddard ozone data analysis. So it was still kind of about ozone. I mean, it, it was, was still about the but, ozone and, and I distinctly remember um, talking to Rich Stolarski and I, this was like 1995, 1996. And I told him, mm-hmm. I said, ozone is dead. We got to find something else to work on because ozone. And I said, all the big problems have been solved. And he said, oh no. And he listed like four 
minor problems that weren't big problems. Right. And he said, he said, you know, we don't understand the 40 kilometer ozone problem. And it's true. The production at 40 kilometers dynamics is not important because the lifetime of right. ozone is so short. So production and loss should balance. So the, the main ozone loss was lower down 20 kilometers, 25, something no, that's like that. That's the ozone depletion. That's what I'm, that's what I yeah, mean. The, right. the ozone hole that's right. had been lower in the atmosphere where there's more just air in the right, atmosphere right, and right. and and that was un so you're talking about much higher up. tell you much higher not important for ozone depletion but just kind of a problem like why can we not get the production and loss to balance at 40 kilometers i mean who cares uh you know i mean i shouldn't say that it's it's kind of it's an interesting academic problem but it's not an important problem right so in other words there was plenty of things if one wanted to study ozone and understand everything about ozone there were still things to do but you could see that that era of like intense excitement exactly was, was over. over and so that's when i really started thinking more about water vapor so i had worked a lot on measuring water vapor as a graduate student and so i started thinking about stratospheric water vapor in fact I actually i started thinking about it even as a graduate student uh, but I, I started really thinking about tropopause processes and and water vapor in the stratosphere in a, in a much more intense way because I thought chlorine was basically done. And I think I, my last chlorine paper may have been 97. And after that, it was ba mainly stratospheric water vapor sort of moving down. Oh, I should say one other thing. I, always, I, I think about this also. So in 1995, I was at Goddard, and I remember the IPCC second assessment report came out. Mm. And I remember Ben Santer just getting dragged through the mud right. uh, by – uh, you know, Fred Singer and that crowd. And I remember, and I didn't know Ben at the time. And I just remember thinking, oh, I'm glad that's not me. I never want to get into one of these high profile <laughs> arguments where, you know, in the public press. Cause I mean, the last, as a scientist, the last thing you want is people accusing you of malfeasance. I mean, that was really terrible accusations then because it was, it was very new. Yeah. You know, today, those kind of accusations are made so freely that they've lost all of their power. But at the time, it was really shocking. And I just felt so, even though I didn't know Ben, I just thought, oh, holy crap, I'm glad that's not me. And, and we should say that later, we're going to get to this, but you were kind of drawn to yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, don't do it, don't get involved. And then, like, ah, oh, crap, I'm involved. Um, I do remember kind of being on the fringes of seeing the climate stuff, but I didn't really think about climate at all. It was like, I knew, I, I can honestly say I knew nothing about climate change for most of the 90s, besides, you know, undergrad stuff. Like, I couldn't have told you who, you know, Nobby and Weatherald was in that paper. I hadn't read any of the literature. It was mainly stratospheric, some dynamics, some chemistry, and, you know, doing data analysis and things like that. But I, I could sort of see my interest kind of getting pulled down. Because uh, once you kind of start getting involved in water vapor, you know, it's it's sort of natural for you to start getting pulled down in the atmosphere. And so my first kind of tropospheric water vapor paper was in 2000. So that was a paper with Steve Sherwood, who Steve Sherwood was, right. he was a Ramanathan graduate student. I met him on the CPEX mission, which we did in Fiji. And I'd kind of kept in touch with him over the years. And at one point he was looking for a postdoc. He had gone to New Zealand and he called me up and said, you know, do you know any jobs? And we and um, in the, at Goddard, a postdoc had just quit. And I told Mark Schobor, I said, hey, this Sherwood guy is not bad. You should consider hiring him. And so and next thing you know, Steve's at Goddard. Right. And so Steve had been doing some really interesting stuff looking at these advection condensation models, these very right. simple tropospheric models where you, you look at air. And anytime it saturates, you just remove the water vapor. Right. And the models actually do a good job. And so the first sort of tropospheric water vapor paper I wrote was that 2000 JGR paper 
with Steve uh, um, where we had done some trajectory analysis. We'd done a lot of trajectory work in the stratosphere. That's one of the workhorses of understanding stratospheric chemistry. You do a trajectory and then you do a chemistry box model along the trajectory. And then, so we did, did a trajectory model in the troposphere and, um, you know, worked out, it, it did an amazingly good job. I mean, shockingly good at reproducing the water vapor. And that was important for a couple of reasons, uh, mainly because, you know, there was this argument that was going on, you know, Carrie Emanuel was a, sort of a proponent of this idea that, that microphysics is important and models are never going to get that. If microphysics are important, it's this bottomless can of worms that makes predicting water vapor really hard. And you, the client models are never going to get that right. And these advection condensation models kind of showed that for whatever the microphysics is doing, you can understand it pretty simply in this case that once the relative humidity exceeds 100%, you just lose all that extra water. Maybe we could give a little more historical context here. So like the earliest climate models, like you mentioned, Manabi's work in the 60s, which now he got a Nobel Prize for, assumed very simple things about water vapor. Like one of the papers that Manabi's, you know, cited in the Nobel Prize is a model that assumed that the relative humidity stays constant. And so as the climate warms, that makes the specific humidity increase, which is a positive, you know, since water is a greenhouse gas, a positive feedback, and that is important to the predictions of global warming. And then later climate models, some of, instead of assuming that, they would predict water vapor, but it would still tend to be, they would organically predict that the relative humidity right. would remain more or less constant and kept getting the same answer. And so Emmanuel and Dick Lindzen, who now see the world very differently, but in those days were somewhat similar in their views, and other people said, well, the models aren't really good enough to predict water vapor, so we don't really know that this is right, and maybe the water vapor won't increase, and the climate sensitivity, you know, the amount of global warming we'll get will be much less than you guys think it is. And so your paper was, I don't know if it was the first one to do this, but it was like a way of saying, no, actually, the models are probably right because this is what they're doing, and this is why it works this way, and the mic microphysics is the details of what's happening in clouds. You're saying it doesn't matter what happens in clouds. The point is there's they're saturated, and then after that, they're not, and right. you know, not much else happens <clears throat> in between. They're just moving around. So right, yeah. So so that was and, uh, and which has turned out after 20 more years of work has turned out to be still pretty much correct. Yeah, so even though the models are way more complicated now and way, you know, way yeah, better. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of really good work has been done to kind of like take it to the next level of sophistication, but I still think that's really one of my better papers and I'm one of the papers I'm sort of proud of even though it's sort of intellectually obsolete at this point. Uh, but that was 2000. And then the other thing that happened in that year is um so as like Goddard, uh, oh I you know I should do a digression about Fred Singer. Uh, Fred Singer, I know Fred. I knew Fred. He's passed away. I knew Fred through my father. So my father. Oh, wow. So my father um, uh, was in space physics, magnetospheric physics, and Fred actually offered him a postdoc when he was at the university in the physics department at the University of Maryland. My father didn't take it. He was went that to, Singer's field. He was. Yeah. Oh, I did not realize that. Yeah. And so my father took a job at Lockheed instead. But but he knew Fred for decades. And when I started at Harvard, you know, he said, "Oh, you got to have lunch with Fred." Uh, and he'll tell you about ozone depletion. And so it was a bit of an education. And, you know, Fred would call me occasionally with sort of outlandish arguments about ozone science. I can't remember exactly what he would say at the time. His his ideas are very fluid and, and his memory of what he was saying when he was saying was not always accurate. You know, uh, towards the end, he would claim that he never really disputed ozone science. Um, but But, you know, Fred, I think, is a I tell my students this. He would, he actually lectured in a few of my classes, 
Um, I had him as a guest lecturer. And um, I say, you know, he's someone of historical importance. Um, and I do mean that literally, not it won't be positive historically, <laughs> but it is historical importance. And so, yeah, so I talked to, I would talk to Fred a lot. And, and you know, I, so uh, actually, I wouldn't say I talked to him a lot. I talked to him occasionally and I would run into him. And, and as time went on, I would run into him more and more as I got more into climate because he, they lost the ozone debate. You know, we, we fl- phased it out. It was, ex- it was cheap. You know, it didn't destroy the economy. We didn't have to give up our air conditioners. Uh, the science so was when solid. you say he lost it, I mean he was taking the public position that we shouldn't worry about exactly, it and didn't yeah. have to ban chlorofluorocarbons. Exactly right. Yeah. So he was he he's so over the years he's taken the anti mainstream position on a number of positions from acid rain to secondhand smoke to ozone depletion. Right. You can read all about it in Merchants, Merchants of, of Doubt, Doubt by yeah, Naomi Reskes right. and Eric Conway. Yeah. That's exactly right. So that leads me to the, the next thing I think that's important in my career is that, um, so I was at Goddard, this would have been 1999, and uh, I sit down at lunch and Randy Kawa sits down and he says, oh, I got an email from Jack Kay. He says they're looking for somebody to go work at OSTP, to basically a detailee. Uh, to go work at OSTP. So that's the Office of Science and Technology Policy. So essentially, that's the White House's science office. So the president's science advisor is the head of OSTP. And if the executive branch has a question about science, uh, that's where they go. And so Randy said, oh, I don't want to do that. That sounds terrible. And I said, oh, I'd be interested in doing that. He says, well, email Jack. So Jack Kay was um, an administrator He's still at NASA headquarters, but at the time he was the the point person for finding somebody to do that. And I said, oh, I'd be interested in doing that. He said, send me your CV. So I sent him my CV and, you know, moved very quickly. They said, oh, yeah, come spend a year at OSTP. This was the wow. last year of the Clinton administration. So, you know, it was Clinton and Gore. I never saw Gore a single time he was out campaigning. Uh-huh. But Clinton, I would see occasionally walking around um, – I was in the uh, the old executive office building, now the Eisenhower executive office building, oh, but at wow. that time it was the OEOB. And so you'd see him occasionally walking through, surrounded with his phalanx of Secret Service. Even in the in the White House, he's surrounded by Secret Service. Yeah. Uh, so it was really is really an interesting experience and one that had a real profound impact on the trajectory of my life. I, I should say that much like investment banking, I didn't particularly like it. Um, What'd you do? Okay, so I was the staff atmospheric scientist. So if something came up, a paper came out in science, or somebody, oh, here's a good one. Freeman Dyson was quoted in an ExxonMobil ad saying climate models don't work. When something like that came up, they would come to me and they would say, figure this out. So I remember there was a paper about, I think it was by Andy Ackerman, about clouds and uh, how black carbon would cause clouds to it would evaporate clouds and so in that sense i can't even remember what the point of the paper was but it was it was it was in nature science it was a high profile paper they said uh figure out if there's anything we need to know about this write up basically a one pager that has sort of a summary has questions and answers like come up with some questions they might get some answers so and and thing about working there's that sounds interesting Mm. but it's always we need this in two hours yeah and so my memory of working there is just stress. Like you are yeah. always, I mean, at the end of the day, you just be wrung out. And as an academic, we never have deadlines like this. You know, our deadlines are, no. this is due in two months. 
Well, uh, you might have. I rarely have deadlines that are due in two hours or an hour. Rarely. If you if you start dealing with the media, you do. Yeah, that's right. But those are those are deadlines you can always say no to. I guess you can so. always say no to that. Uh, and I do remember I called Freeman Dyson on the phone. Uh, I, I said I have no idea what this guy is saying, and I didn't know at that point. I you know I didn't know a lot about climate. I was sort of learning about climate on the job. But I called him up, and even at that point, I could tell he didn't really have good arguments that his arguments were much more philosophical about about policy than they were about the actual yeah. ability of models. You know, he had strong ideas about how society should respond that dominated his scientific statements. Yeah. And so so at, at the end of that, I have to say I didn't enjoy it, but I learned I learned a lot about how how science and policy interact. Yeah. And so that was, it was like taking a master's degree in one year. And, and I also learned about, you know, things like everybody understands a trend. Mm. If you show a plot that has some variable and the variable's going up, everybody understands that. You know, nobody understands a Hofmuller diagram. You know, there are these other <laughs> diagrams that are really complicated to understand. And so you, you learn kind of tips like that, like, you know, mm. simplify your graphics, show them a trend if you can, mm. and just sort of more generally about, how science works. But one of the things I did, and this again had a real profound impact is I was, so the IPCC report, the third assessment report was undergoing review. And one of mm. the review processes, one of the review, steps of the review is the government review, all of the governments review it. Right. And so OSTP was involved in the government review and I had to review a chapter. I can't even remember which chapter it was, mm. but I remember reading the IPCC report. And I did not know a lot about climate at the time. And I was really shocked I was literally shocked at the attribution statement, the statement that mm. we are, it is likely that humans are responsible for most of the warming since mm. the middle of the 20th shocked century. Shocked because... I didn't think it was that we understood it that well. You know, I guess I had kind of believed, as somebody who is not really involved with it, I believe that natural variability could explain But I mean, that, did the report convince you or you were shocked yeah, that they were going out on a limb or you were shocked no, that No, I was I was convinced by the quality of the science when yeah. I read I read the material. That that's yeah. climate the, the when I closed the third assessment report, my conclusion was climate science is much more advanced than I thought it was. Mm. As you know, and I was a atmospheric scientist, but someone who'd been really focused on stratosphere and I was kind of getting into the troposphere, but uh, I was really kind of developing my ideas and that I really walked away from that US government review thinking thinking this is really and and i was sort of convinced it was a climate was going to be a big deal which i really hadn't been convinced of before that that i said you know this is really a, a big problem you know we really under we understood it was going to be a big problem but on the other hand there were a lot of things that we didn't know you know water vapor feedback and as soon as i saw water vapor i thought well you know I can, I, that's what I need to work on, you know, because mm. I, I have. Which you'd, but you'd started already. Well, I'd Or this was this, wait, what year? No, this? this is, this is sort of the same time that paper. I, so I'd been working on the paper about simulating water vapor, but I hadn't really thought about the feedback. So that was, so, 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 it, you know, my 2000 paper basically takes reanalysis wins and then drives this advection condensation model, this very simple model that just rains out water when relative humidity gets above 100%. And so, so if you give me the wind field, I can predict the water vapor. And, right. that, and I compared it to satellite measurements. It looked really good. But that doesn't really tell you what the feedback is. But you must have known that was a motivation for doing it. You know, it. I'm not sure I did. I think it was just something that, that I thought – again, I didn't know – I was learning about climate. Mm. And I didn't – I don't think I was really – I probably – in the back of my mind, kind of had as some idea of like people care about tropospheric water vapor because of the feedback, but 
this really isn't going to tell us anything. Maybe about Steve was thinking in those terms. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that that could have been right. Uh, and so I really started to want to work on on that more because when you're when you're kind of switching fields, you want to take as much of the expertise you've already developed and apply that to the new problem. You don't want to start it from scratch because uh, that would be a very long and painful process. So I said, well, you know, I know a lot about water vapor, so I should really work on the, the feedback and really try to come up with a number mm. for the feedback. Mm. Um, and so um, this would probably be about 2002. Um, Ken Minchwaner, who uh, actually was a graduate student at Harvard with me, um, mm. and he worked for Mike McElroy. And he so he took a sabbatical at Goddard. He, we sat in the same office. Mm. And so I started, I told him about this problem and he was sort of a 1D radiative convective modeler or he had a 1D, I mean, nobody is a 1D radiative convective model even back then, <laughs> but he had one that we could sort of iteratively run to change the boundary condition, the surface temperature, and then use this sort of idea of ad, that we get from the advection condensation model. We can estimate what the feedback is that way, mm-hmm. uh, or the, at least estimate with the change in water. We, I wasn't quite putting a a single global number on it. We could estimate if the change in water vapor, if water vapor was really going up or down as the climate warmed, Mm. and was it maintaining constant relative humidity, and why would it do that? And and so this is really probably one of the papers I'm most proud of. Again, obsolete. Newer work has taken it much further. But we, we wrote basically a very simple model of water vapor in the in the troposphere and showed that it, it basically should maintain about constant relative humidity and then we compared mm. it with some satellite data using basically ENSO as our as our proxy right. El and, Nino southern yeah, oscillation yeah El Nino El Ni- during El Nino as the climate warms and during La Nina as the climate cools off so you can use those warming and coolings and you can kind of say does it kind of look like what our model predicts and it does right. and so Brian Soden was publishing some papers I hesitate to say that was the first paper. I think Brian had some papers where he was looking at some other data sets, which may have come out before, but it was kind of among the first papers that came out that really demonstrated with observations and theory that that the water vapor feedback was going to kind of operate the way it did in the models. Yeah. Uh, I worked on that for, um, you know, probably much of the 2000s was kind of the decade of water vapor before, by the end of the 2000s, it was basically a solved uh, a solved problem. Um, I should digress a little bit. So my postdoc at Goddard was 94 to 96. And then after 96, um, I had an NRC postdoc. That ended. And so I was hired essentially as a contractor at Goddard by the University of Maryland. Okay, right. So I was a, a research scientist at the University of Maryland, but there are a lot of those, but they sit at Goddard. I actually sat, I had offices in both places. So I actually split mm-hmm. my time. I'd spend three days a week at Maryland and I'd mm-hmm. spend two days a week at Goddard. Uh, w- and so I went back and I, I thought, you know, I should teach some courses, you know, as an academic. I was a soft money research scientist. So I was writing proposals. I didn't have to teach, but I helped teach some courses. And um, in the courses, I would do some climate, do some sigma t to the fourth. And, you know, you look at the students, <laughs> they don't give a crap about sigma t to the fourth. And then I would talk about my time at the White House. And you could just see them perk up. They, you know, they love hearing stories about politics and people arguing. And, and they were really interested in that. And so I got the idea of writing a book about yeah. sort of science and politics, just because the students were so interested and I had interesting stories to tell and I could talk about, yeah. you know, my time uh, in the White House. And so I went and I talked to Cambridge about that and they said, well, you know, you don't really have the credibility to write a, a policy book 
uh, based on one year at OSTP, sort of the book I was suggesting. So I went back to somebody I knew at OSTP, Ted Parson, who um, I actually shared an office with. And um, I can say I, I knew Ted and I would get along when every day at about 3.30, he would take his gym bag and he'd go under his desk, he uses a pillow and he'd take like a half hour nap. <laughs> and I thought, that's a guy I can, I can work with. <laughs> uh, and so, so, so I asked him if he wanted to co-author a book on science and, and policy. And he said, oh, yeah, it sounds good. So we started working. This would be 2002, maybe. It took a long time. Working with a co-author is hard. Yeah. Uh, the book didn't come out till 2005 or 2006. I, I'm not sure. I don't know, because you've written a bunch of books. I didn't know this one. Yeah, so it's called The Science and Politics of Global Climate Change, colon, A Guide to the Debate. So okay. um, I'll, I'll send you a copy. Yeah. Or I'll have, Cam- I'll have Cambridge send you a copy. Um so, so yeah, so that, that was a book that was focused on kind of the intersection of the debate. And this, and I, so I really started getting interested in this. It was like, you know, the beauty of academics is you kind of go where your interests lead you. And um, I really said, you know, this is really interesting. And about the same time, I started, uh, I guess, I don't know if this, if blogging counts as social media, but I started, uh, I was well, a blogger. was a precursor. Yeah. So media. I started going on Roger Pilkey Jr.'s blog, Prometheus. Uh-huh. And it was actually, at first, it was really a great place. There were a lot of really smart people who, you know, Dave Roberts, uh, he was at Grist and then Vox. He would, blo- uh-huh. he, would, he would be in the comments. Gavin would be in the comments. Gavin was usually arguing with Roger. Uh-huh. You know, I would comment on stuff. And the comment section was really fantastic. Lots of, so this is, again, 2005, 2006. There weren't other options. But, you know, as is always the case, you know, after a while, you know, you're George Harrison, you think, you know, why, why am I not leading the band? So I thought, <laughs> you know, why am I commenting on Roger's blog? Because, you know, Roger even then had a bit of a prickly personality and had some, mm. uh, and I just thought, you know, it, 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 dealing with that comment section was probably not the, what, what I wanted to do with kind of my outreach. And so I started my own blog, which very quickly I got a, call from Dave Roberts, who was at Grist. And he said, why don't you come blog at Grist? Uh, you know, I like your blog, but you'd get a lot more eyeballs if you're blogging at Grist. I thought, oh, that's a good idea. Oh, well, I should tell a story. Uh, one of my very first blog posts that I did on my own, uh, you know, once you start blogging, you're looking for content. And so um, the this was right before the fourth assessment report came out in 2007. The I think it was the American Enterprise Institute wrote a letter to a bunch of people. And what, one of them was my colleague, Jerry North, colleagues, Jerry North and Steve Schroeder, who are in my department, asking them to write critiques of the fourth assessment report. And they would pay them $10,000. Wow. And so the uh, American Enterprise Institute, for you don't know, is a real anti-action on climate change, conservative think tank. And so I, I blogged about it. I said, this is really interesting. They're, they're asking, paying people $10,000 to write a critique and, you know, it's the kind of thing that looks very suspicious. Although I said in my blog, I thought it was very fair to them. I said, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, because they're asking mainstream people like my colleague Jerry North, I don't necessarily think that they're looking for something really negative, but it's really, it's hard to believe they're looking for an honest assessment of the science given who they are. And so basically nothing happened with that for about six months. And then somebody, I have no idea who it was, uh, some environmental activists started, this was probably, that probably was August. And then in February, right on when the fourth semester report comes out, they start pitching this, started pitching it to reporters. Your story, my, your blog. My blog oh, post to I reporters. See. And it I just see. went everywhere. In fact, it made the, a joke on the Colbert report. 
uh, he actually made a joke about AEI paying scientists to cast doubt oh, wow. on the fourth assessment report. Okay. Uh, so that was kind of an interesting thing. And, and actually, th- there's a lesson there about kind of the power that that scientists actually do have. If we get a good message out there, there are people who are interested in the kinds of things we see. Right. And, um, y- you know, we can we can be influential voices. But it wasn't like your post was about the water vapor feedback. I mean, it was directly engaging in the political Right. That's argument. Right. That's right. But I guess that's right. But it was it was I guess maybe let me rephrase that. I could engage in the political <laughs> argument and and have an impact, even though I wasn't really the one. I suddenly realized I could have pitched this. I could have started calling up reporters and said, hey, you know, at that time, I think I knew right. a few reporters, not a lot. But, you know, I knew, I think, Andy Revkin and um, a few other people who are mm. sort of high profile climate reporters. There weren't that many at that time. Right. There are a lot more now. But yeah. um, so there, there, I think there was a lesson there. So so I blogged at Grist for a few years. And towards the end of the 2000s, I kind of decided, you know, as I had several other times in my career, the problem I was working on was done. I said, water vapor is done. So now it's uh-huh. clouds. The cloud feedback uh-huh. is the big uncertainty. And so probably, you know, 2007, 2008 is when I really started thinking about trying to do the kinds of things we were doing to measure the water vapor feedback, but try to do that with clouds. And clouds is much much harder uh, because, you know, there are offsetting impacts. Um, I think it's unlike water vapor, which is very similar, has a similar response to El Nino and long-term warming from sort of a global average perspective. I think that's right. not true for clouds. Right. And, and so, so I started working on that. And, and then, the models were also much less consistent. That's, and, yeah, that's you right. know, just much more. It was de- very dependent on sketchier aspects of the models. And, and uh, yeah, just there's so many different kinds of clouds. And Right. That's right. Yeah. They yeah. might really, probably really do depend on microphysics. You know, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. That's right. No, I mean, it's, it's, it is a can of worms. Uh, but in, in 2010, I published a paper, which I think was the first estimate of the, uh, the cloud feedback, the first global average magnitude in watts per square meter per degree Kelvin, which is the units mm. of the feedback. Uh, and so I think uh, that was the, the first estimate of that. Now, that was in response to ENSO. Right. So, but you could compare that to the model's response, and so, so it doesn't necessarily right. tell you this is the long-term response. Right. Um, I think they're probably not too different. It turns out they're not too different, but at the time we didn't necessarily know that. In fact, I think a lot of people thought, well, they're going to be completely different. So, so I think that was a, um, you know, that was another one of my more significant contributions to literature. Again, it's obsolete now, but at the time, uh, you know, it was something I was very proud of. It was a really, you know. Do- do you think all this political stuff and blogging helped and and did that influence these decisions about research topics? Um, I don't think that that influenced this decision um, because uh, it was pretty obvious that the water vapor feedback was done. And it was also obvious that the cloud feedback was the big, the last big uncertainty among the feedbacks. And in fact, if you looked at like what Dick Lindzen was saying and, and Roy Spencer, sort of the two last credible publishing scientists who were, um, uh, you know, they were talking about the cloud feedback as being the thing that would save us. Right. You know, the cloud feedback is going to save us from climate change. And right. uh, so I think that was pretty clear that was the next big problem. So then I started working on the cloud feedback. And um, also around that time, I started writing op-eds. So ClimateGate was 2009. I can't remember if that was my – I wrote I wrote an op-ed to the San Antonio paper. I can't remember if that was exactly my first op-ed. That was among the very first op-eds I wrote. And it was basically 
saying that the entire narrative of climate gate doesn't really make any sense. Um, you know, if scientists were really making up climate change and climate data and all this, you wouldn't have these arguments among them. Like, you know, Kevin Trenber saying it's a travesty that we can't trace the energy flows to the climate system. He'd be saying, of course we can't because we're making this up. I mean, it was, it's, <laughs> you read the, you read the emails and it shows these people are really actually doing legitimate work. They understand what we know. They understand what we don't know. Yeah. They're clearly not making stuff up because if they were, they wouldn't be arguing over these interpretations of the data. Right. You know, so that was, I think, again, one of my very first op-eds. And then we had another op-ed when the attorney general of Texas, Greg Abbott, who's now the governor, uh, when he was attorney general, he yeah. wrote, this was right after Obama took office and the EPA issued their endangerment findings saying that carbon dioxide was a pollutant. Yeah. Texas filed um, a challenge to that. I can't remember exactly if it was a lawsuit or it was going to the yeah. EPA, but Texas challenged that. And we wrote an op-ed, Catherine Hayhoe, that's probably the first thing I ever did with her. Uh -huh. She was a co-author. Um, and then some people at Rice, Andre Droxler. And, um, Wait, so were you in Texas by this point? Oh, yeah. So I moved, okay, I guess I skipped over that. Yeah. So I moved to Texas a in 2005. So in 2000. Oh, okay. I didn't realize it was that long ago. Yeah. yeah so 2004, I think my wife and I decided we were living in Laurel, Maryland, sort of between Goddard mm. and University of Maryland. And we decided that that was not a place we wanted to live long term. And so, mm. I, and plus, you know, as a soft money scientist, there's always a lot of stress involved with that. I mean, there's not a lot of stress right. if you're a single guy. But once you're married and you start having a family, uh, it becomes a more stressful job. And so I, I should say just sort of how lucky it is. I happened to be on a proposal with my colleague Ping Yang. Uh, when he was at Goddard, I, I started working with him and he moved uh -huh. to Texas A&M. And then I, ha I just emailed him that I was going to be in Houston for uh, a field mission. Yeah. And he said, oh, come up to A&M and give a talk. Uh, he just invited me up to give a, the weekly seminar. So I drove up to A&M from Houston yeah. and I went out to dinner with Jerry North. They said, you know, we have a job opening. And, you know, you should apply for that. And, and you know, it's, again, one of the many millions of little decisions you make in your life. But, uh -huh. you know, I wonder if I would have applied for that job had I not visited the department because Ping happened to be there because yeah. I happened to work with Ping when he was at Goddard. And you, Jer Jerry North is a master salesman. And he really sold me yeah. on the place. So um, I applied for the job and I got it. And I mean, did being from Texas figure in your thoughts in any not, way not really my parents at that by that time had moved to arizona okay uh i did have a sister living in houston but the rest of the family was gone um you know i just thought it was a good department it was a good department and yeah, i no, really was, i really yeah. liked i liked the place i liked you know there were a lot of things about living in texas that you know some things i like some things i don't like on balance it was probably a net net zero since then i've really <laughs> i really like living there but yeah. at the time i think it was mainly it was a faculty position with nine months of support and yeah, yeah, uh yeah. you know it was in a good department so yeah. you, the, you don't get too many offers like that so i took it yeah. um and so i uh, i started there in the middle of 2005 i did do several things in texas so in 2007 i testified for the first time before the texas yeah. house um, and I told them, I said, you know, fossil fuels are, are on their way out. 
you know, you should get on the renewable energy bandwagon. You know, this is the time to do it is yeah. now. I'm not sure anybody listened to me. That may have been a little early. Certainly it's true now. And I think the U.S. really has ceded leadership in renewable energy to China well, But it's so, I mean, you, you tell, I'm sure you know better than me, but my perception is that on the one hand, renewable energy is booming in Texas. There's a lot of it and it's happening. But on the other hand, it still remains a total petrostate politically. So- I don't know. Yeah. It's a funny, so is that a misunderstanding? No, I think that's right. So the Texas energy market is deregulated. So all the private money that's building power is building solar and wind. So mm. if you look at it, solar and wind are all that's getting connected to the Texas grid at this point. But they're buying it from Chinese and European companies. You know, they're not buying it. The from hardware, local. you mean? The hardware. Yeah. yeah. And I told yeah. them in 2007, I said, yeah. look, you should be supporting renewable energy because then you can, you know, build it in Texas and then people will buy it in Texas. Yeah. Uh, at the state level, we're still a petro state. I mean, we're well, we, arguably at the national level, too. Right. Like. But certainly at the state level, they are completely beholden to fossil fuels for um, a number of reasons. And so, so I started getting involved in the politics of it, you know, testifying. This would be the late 2000s. And then in 2010, yeah. I wrote this op ed. Uh, which sort of my probably my second op-ed or second sort of high profile one in the Chronicle. And the next week, uh, Greg Abbott responded. He wow. and, and it's really not. I mean, it's a lot of the usual arguments about how you can't believe climate models and the earth stopped warming in 1998. I mean, a lot of really right, right. bad arguments. And then, you know, climate gay, you can't trust the IPCC. Uh, I mean, n- none of those arguments have really stood the test of time. But of course, he's yeah. governor now. So. Uh, you can't really criticize him. <laughs> he did what he needed to do. And and so, uh, you know, I, I sort of started, continued working on the cloud feedback. I also was also working in, strat- continued working in stratospheric water vapor. I never really stopped working on that. Uh, but that was never, I think, a real major part of my research agenda. I always had a few students working on that. And I've really kind of recently completely stopped working on that. But yeah. uh, otherwise, I've been working on stratospheric water vapor for a very long time. Yeah. Um, and then I, uh, 2013, I got uh, my Twitter account. I think Twitter... Well, yeah. I, I think social media is destroying the world. I, fi- I think it's great. Um, it's yeah. really improved my, my reach as someone who speaks out about climate. And, and uh, you know, the thing I realized very quickly was, you know, you can write a paper and you can spend a year on the paper and it, it will get yeah. 15 citations and 30 people will read it. Or you can spend three minutes writing a tweet that gets 250,000 impressions. You know, the, the ability yeah. to reach people is much greater. Now, you're reaching different audiences, obviously. Well, and the problem is you can do that even if what you're saying is nonsense. That's right. That's right. I'm looking at my reach. Right. You know, it's, it's like my reach right. is much larger if I do that. You know, I still think you have to write papers because that gives you the credibility to get the reach on Twitter. But I've been yeah. amazed at the ability to get your message out through social media in ways that you never could have done before you you did that. But I struggle with this so much because I've had periods of trying to do it and then I've backed off it in the last year or two because I do think it's destroying the world. And it's true, it can be wonderful, but it, it takes a lot of time. It's hard not to get sucked into a lot of stupid stuff. You know, you have to deal with the trolls and and stuff and it you know, you're breaking everything up into these little thoughts that are kind of the algorithms want you to generate as much you know strong emotion as possible and i don't know that that's always a good incentive and 
I think it can be used well. You know, somebody like you or, you know, there's many other great climate communicators out there who use it well. But it, it makes me feel bad so much of the time yeah. that I find myself kind of repelled by it even as, as I'm drawn to it. I mean, it's kind of a – what do you see as the objective there? Is the objective to, you know, communicate that the scientific consensus on global warming is correct? Is there – like what's the – you know? Yeah, let me respond to a couple of those points because you brought up really good points. Um, so I think you have to decide how you're going to use social media. So I rarely engage in arguments. There are a few people I'll argue with, especially if people are really high profile, I might argue with them. But I certainly don't – you know, if I tweet something out about, you know, 2016 was the hottest year in record, and someone goes, oh, surface – you can't believe those data. Yeah, I'm never, never going to respond to that. But, but doesn't – I guess to me the trick that I haven't mastered is to shrug it off. Like when you get that nasty stuff – I did like it kind of eats at me a little bit and I just yeah. don't want to have to. I think, you know, I think you just forget about it. It eats at me for about five minutes <laughs> and then I, I, and I sometimes I'll type a response and then I just won't send it, you know, cause you see this is so stupid and so corrupt and you right. know, these responses are, but I just ignore it. I mean, if you write something in the media, right, if you write something in the newspaper and you, and you get comments and there was all kind of nasty stuff in the comments, you can just learn to not read. Yeah. The comments. You just don't read them. But Twitter, that's like all it is, is the comments. So right. it's a little harder for me anyway yeah. to, to have to just kind of keep it at a distance like that once you're. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's, that's a personality type. I don't have a problem with just shrugging it off. Yeah. Cause I find that those people, once they realize you're not going to respond, they kind of go away. Yeah. They, you know, this person never responds to me. And, and, you know, if somebody's super irritating, uh, you mute them. I typically don't block people, but I will mute them. So I just don't see it. Now, getting to your other question about what do you communicate, um, I find that, like, I had a thread on what is wet bulb temperature, you know, just explaining yeah, what well, it that, is. And, okay, yeah, and sure. so, you know, there's a lot of just kind of general education by people yeah. who want to know stuff. You know, what does the science tell us about hurricanes and climate change? So right. I've had a several threads. I've, I've cited yeah, I've read your, them. I've, I've, read I've them, cited, yeah. I cite your congressional testimony, which I think is really good. Thank you. So, you know, stuff like that, it's, it's just, it doesn't take me very long to put them together. It's public education. It's a sort of public education. Yeah. For a long time, I really tried to avoid saying anything that was political. But, you know, there comes a point where what's happened, and Gavin Schmidt made this point long ago. I saw a talk by him, which is, which is really good, which is uh, that how impossible it is to avoid being political in climate science. Because, yeah. Yeah. you know, if Ted Cruz says the earth hasn't been warming, right. and you say, well, that's not right. Here's the data. You've entered into a political argument with right, him. Right. And so- your choice is to not say that's wrong, to just abdicate your responsibility right, to interact right. with, or to get or to just dive in. And I've kind of decided in the right. last few years that I'm just diving in. You know, I, I know yeah. a lot about the problem. This is my opinion. People who want to listen to it can. People who can yeah. follow me on Twitter. People who don't, yeah, don't have to. No one, ha no one's forced. No, to I'm totally to me. with you on that. I mean, I think on the one hand, and there's a few things. I mean, on the one hand, the climate problem is inherently political to the extent that we talk about solutions in any way, their presence or absence or what they should be, because then, then people's interests and right. values yeah. are at issue. So it's political, you know, and science is always political in all kinds of ways. And the historians and philosophers will tell us that. But, but, but it's, it's science is explicitly political because of all of the politicians who make scientific statements. Well, well that's the other part. So I guess what I was going to say is like, to the extent that science has any ramifications for humanity at all, it's inherently political, but it's even more political because we work 
in a field where, you know, there's a, a very, very powerful faction in the world that has chosen to politicize it even more. Right. So you either engage with that or you're or you're not involved. So I, I don't have a problem with being political, but there's something about the social media that seems so toxic to me that I, no, I struggle it, it with. No, it is. It's terrible. But, you know, it's it's like if I stop tweeting – I think I would lose a lot of my platform, my ability yeah. to influence. Because yeah, I'm followed by a lot of reporters. You know, I'm, I'm followed by a lot of people who I want to see. And, and I get, I get, I just yesterday, I got an email from somebody asking me to write something for their publication saying, I saw this tweet. Yeah. Okay. So and let me so, put it a different way. So this is all like why, why it works for Andy. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, give, make the case to, or to what's your opinion for example, me, I mean, I'm basically like you were at similar sta- age and career stage. So should I be doing it? Should our colleagues be doing it? What about the young scientists? You know, should we all be doing it or should we not? Is it a totally personal decision? Like, you know, we're publicly funded. Is this the way we have a responsibility to get our stuff out? Or or is it, you know, it, it, can you uh, take it beyond your own situation and say yeah, what you think? I mean, so when I talk to students, I often tell them that I think it's good for their careers. I think it's been actually good for my career that more yeah. people know who I am. People still don't read my papers, but people know <laughs> who I do. am. People, some, some do. A small number of very smart and distinguished people read my papers, but most people don't. But I think um, people know who I am. And as a result, I get more invitations. I think I've gotten many more invitations to go do stuff because of it. And so I tell students it's good for their Mm -hmm. career. Now, the thing that you have to be, you have to understand is for a student, I think you have to be a lot more careful if you're you're a student and a young person who doesn't have tenure about what you're going to say. And I do think that as a white, as a middle-aged white dude, I get a lot less hate. Then, yeah. for example, someone like Catherine Hayhoe yeah. or uh, Marshall Shepard, you yeah. know, people who are not white guys. Yeah. And so I think students need to understand that, you know, and you said it's it can be toxic. And if you can't take yeah. it, then don't do it. Yeah, I mean, I they're, they're, those are two people you mentioned who are really good at it and who seem are. to be able to take it. You but, wonder, they get, but I've talked but you, to both of them about the abuse. That oh, they, I know. And, but yeah. So you wonder about all the people who are not doing it because they're not quite as thick-skinned or, right, as, or, exactly. as, or have the right strategies to cope the way those two. Right, right. And, and so I tell the students, you know, I think it's good for you. I think it's good for your career. You need to find your voice. And, you know, you know, some people just tweet out, you know, there, there are graduate students who have tens of thousands of followers who just tweet out cool graphics. You know, here's a goes, yeah. here's a goes image. You know, they have their voice. They know right. what they say. Um, and then there are people who are more political Again, I think if you're a graduate student or a postdoc, I would think carefully about whether you want to do that. I wouldn't say don't do it, but just yeah. be careful, be a little more careful about that. You know, the whole idea of tenure is exactly to protect us right. from things like that. So, so since we, I mean, we haven't covered your whole scientific career, but um, we've covered some of it. So I want to get to the topic. I think you and I have in common that we have changed our you know, the top things we've worked on a couple of times, both started in the stratosphere and then, and now have, I know we've talked about in re, in the last year or so, having had a similar experience of feeling the need to do more applied things, things that are more about the impacts of, of climate, of your recent, the recent years and not just like the specifics of the research projects, but, and I, I want to ask you about that, like how that happened. You know, you may, you've had, just right. had these several transitions where you said what I'm doing, right, right, right. you know, is not important anymore or it's done. I want to do something right. else. And I want to hear about the mo- this most recent one because in yeah. some ways it's the most radical change. It is. It is. So, so in the sort of during the pandemic, a few things happened. So one of them was this paper in Views of Geophysics, Sherwood et al., 
which I think really kind of settled the climate sensitivity problem. I mean, it didn't mm. it didn't give us one single number, but it reduced the range significantly. I think it's a, it was a real tour de force of science. Yeah, uh, and so I think that. There's limited value in continuing to work on climate sensitivity. I'm not saying there's no value, and I think there people will continue right. to work on it because it's an interesting problem. But I kind of lost interest in it when that paper came out. And I said, well, that's done. And at the same time, I went through this Texas blackout, which was really terrible. I mean, you can't imagine what it's like when it's five degrees outside to not have any power. I mean, it's really awful. Yeah, And uh, that really told me that we are not prepared for climate change. You know, that yeah. it was this, it was this one week crash course in how unprepared we are. Cause, cause if you think about it, you know, Texas is fine when the temperature is in the upper twenties, we get down to the upper twenties, probably every year we'll get temperatures of 26, 27 degrees. But if the temperature gets down, say 10 degrees below that, the whole system just collapses you know, and, and if you look at the future of climate change, we'll easily get temperatures 10 degrees above kind of where they are, most extreme temperatures. Right. Uh, you look at the Pacific Northwest heat wave that we just had. I mean, we're already seeing these right. temperatures that are going to quickly depart right. in the high direction, kind of what this one was in the low direction. And right. I just think that we're completely unprepared for it. People right. people don't understand how bad it's going to be. And I, and I thought, given that, I think I've run out of steam on climate sensitivity and feedbacks. I've stopped working on the stratosphere. I don't think there's, unless I can get a new idea, I'm not working on that. I said, I need to do something else. And so sort of two things. One is looking at impacts. Uh, yeah. We live in a golden age of data. You cannot imagine all the data that's available out there that you can just download. I remember when I was a grad student, I had to call yeah. the SAGE people. SAGE makes is a satellite instrument that makes these ozone profiles. I'd call them up on the mm. phone. I'd say, can you send me all the profiles between this latitude and this latitude, this day and this day? And then two weeks later, you get a floppy disk in the mail. Yeah. And I mean, that was how you got data. Yeah. And nowadays, you can download all this data. So I think there's a lot of of, of impact data uh, and looking at the intersection of, of climate and humans that people really haven't looked at. And I think that there's a lot of looming catastrophes there that we need to recognize uh, or we're really going to be cooked. It's, it's going to be like the Texas blackout, except on the hot end, and it's never going to end. I mean, the blackout right. eventually ended when the temperatures went up a little bit, but, you know, climate change is not going to end. And so right. I think it's 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 interesting and important work, and I'm, I'm kind of excited to do it. So a couple of things. So the first thing is the Texas thing. I mean, there have been people, you know, making the argument that that itself is somehow influenced by climate change. But you're not saying that. It doesn't matter. Like, it just, That's right. just makes you recognize that. That's right. I'm personally skeptical of that. Although yeah, there are too. people, there, <laughs> me too. There are people I respect who advocate for it. And I think the scientific community will argue that out. Um, but it doesn't matter. I mean, the point that's is right. that the point is our vulnerability. Yeah. That's what the Texas blackout really demonstrated that we are unprepared for even small deviations outside of the range that we normally get. Yeah. And it does have to get very far outside of that and things collapse. And, um, you know, it's going to be a bad ride. So I, I'm, you know, I'm right there with you. I mean, the, the specifics of the stuff that, that I'm involved in, the specifics of the stuff that you're doing is a little different, but I think we're going in similar direction in the big picture. But do you think about, like, what is the theory of change of how, I mean, since you're motivated by human impacts and you're working on human impacts, like how, what's the route for the research to matter? I mean, is it just, and, and I ask this in, in the context of the severe political dysfunction that we have 
in the United States and a lot of the rest of the world and certainly in Texas and, you know, a lot of other U.S. states at the state level and at the federal level. So, like, what's the way that, you know, the research we do on climate impacts can mitigate them? Yeah, so, I, so that's a really good point. And um, you, you are correct that at the state and the federal level, it's really hard to see how you overcome um, the barriers. But I think at, at there are a lot of people that would be extremely interested in research, for example, on future real estate values or tropical cyclone probabilities, uh, right. you know, pr- people in private industry. Um, the cities are actually very, in Texas, are very forward thinking about climate. Every city has a, has a climate office that's not called the climate office. It mm-hmm. could be resilience or sustainability, but they all have somebody who's thinking about climate change. And I, I talk to them occasionally and they're very interested yeah. in that kind of work. So I think the route to people actually using the science is probably going through the cities. Yeah. That's what I think. I think eventually, you know, I, I hope springs eternal, but I, I, I do b- hope that one day people look out the window and say, holy crap, yeah. we got to do something. I have to say one of the worst things about COVID was that it, it made me probably less hopeful that people would look out the window, see reality oh and take gosh. action since yeah. there's no sort of more painful and obvious you know, you have morgue trucks filling up with bodies and people still say, you know, why should I be forced to get vaccinated or wear a mask? So it's not clear to me that will happen, but I I certainly hope it does. Yeah. I don't know if you remember, but, you know, when the pandemic started at first, you know, Trump was saying, oh, it's not a big thing. It's like the flu, this and that. And then there was a moment early on in the first few weeks where he suddenly accepted that it was a real thing. And you know, he gave us some, I can't remember, it was some relatively serious press conference or, or some kind of statement. I don't remember if it was a press conference, but where he um, said this and, you know, it wasn't yet at the point of really, maybe there were some actions or maybe there wasn't, but it was like, okay, maybe something this big can shock even him out of, you know, the way he is and all his uh, followers but it don't it didn't last it was like it yeah. lasted a short time and then it was back to the same rhetoric and the anti-vax thing just blows my mind because it's like you know before there was vaccines you know you could see that like the trump administration wanted a vaccine so they could take credit for it before the election right. and then it actually happens and all these people are you know it's just mind-boggling and you think like yeah the problem with climate change is we've all said this for you know known this for a long time it takes a long time yeah. people don't see it they think it's in the future they don't understand it and here you've got a thing that's right in front of your nose. People are dying, you know, by the huge numbers. And you think, surely that's got to be different. And that it's not is just incredibly depressing. I mean, yeah. And, and what's amazing, what's amazing to me is you can predict someone's views on COVID with almost 100% accuracy. I mean, by their views on climate. Yeah. yeah or any it, number know, of other issues. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's you know, their, their views are so strongly correlated. Yeah. It's a package uh, deal. It really <laughs> is. And it's just really, um, I mean, it's really discouraging for what it tells us about our ability to get climate done. But, you know, there's, uh, I guess the, the, addendum to my answer to your question is I don't know how you break through some of these right. log jams. I think if I knew, if anybody knew how to do that, we'd be doing it. So breaking through the political log jam is, is too hard for you or for me, right? But but your answer to how the science makes a difference is consistent with the best I've been able to come up with, which is that if you're doing things on adaptation, which is really kind of what you're describing yeah. um, one way or the other, 
that is happening and is going to happen at a number of levels with a lot of different actors. Yeah. So it gives you a chance. There's the cities. There's uh, private sector. There's I don't know if you've engaged all with like activist groups. I haven't much yet, but I think maybe that's a good thing to right. to do. You know, they they have some cloud and some um, you know, and they're trying to do the right thing on some level. But I think in doing this kind of work, which I think a tremendous number of young people are getting into our field want to want to do it. So for you and I, there's a bit of a scientific shift. You know, you have to if you're studying how you know power industries affected by climate, you have to learn something about the power industry. So there's new there's new facts you have to learn and new science you have to learn. But also, I think what was an, an element that was missing from the research that most of us came up doing that have the background you and I have, and that is required for this kind of work is that it has to be in partnership with other groups of people who are not scientists by and large. You know what I mean? You're doing it for a user in some level. I mean, maybe not everything has to be with the user. You can be thinking ahead to that eventually some user will want it. But on some level, it has to be done in in some kind of partnership with somebody if you want it to have an impact. Right, right. And so that's a whole other set of skills that we didn't, you know, don't right. necessarily know. And the, and especially when the people you're working with are very different from you, there's a lot of things you have to learn. Right, right. You know, how to let others have a voice in what you're doing. But at the same time, you're the scientist, so you kind of have to retain some control over it too. And a lot of tensions there that I, I think I'm just starting to yeah. Yeah. Most, you know, traditional academics, you're writing papers for your colleagues. Right. You know, exactly. Because you're trying to push back the frontier of knowledge and you're all working together and each of you are, has your own project, uh, your own little part of the of the turbulent interface you're trying to push back. And, and you know, now you're, yeah, you're working with a diverse group of people who many of them don't understand very much science and, uh, you know, they're not all pulling in the same direction. Yeah. So just hopefully there's some component of the direction they're pulling that matches your direction. So what are the things you're working on? What are the, what are the, so I have a, so I have a project with a graduate student looking at the ERCOT grid. The so ERCOT is the organization that manages the Texas energy electricity grid. And that's right. what failed so spectacularly during the blackout. And so we've been looking at how they forecast energy demand. Uh. And um, it's, I'll tell you, I've learned, it's been great fun. I've learned a lot about the energy sector in Texas, which I didn't know before. So, you know, it's one of the beauties of academics. Right. And so we actually have a paper that looks at ERCOT's predictions. And so ERCOT does not incorporate climate change or variability outside the historical record in their forecast. So they look mm. at the last 15 years of data mm. and they say next year is going to be exactly like some pull from the last 15 years right. or 20 years. I'm not sure exactly, but it's the recent past. And so we kind of analyze that. We take the, the CESM large ensemble and we bias correct it and we come up with a PDF for Texas yeah. that has hundreds of winters and summers. And we can actually create a PDF of power demand. Yeah. And so, yeah, so we have a paper in review right now on that. So um, I also have a student who's looking at uh, urban heat island from a satellite. I'm I'm sort of getting into it. I think I'm yeah, doing yeah. probably a lot of stuff that's amateurish, but you well, know you've got to start. Well, you've got to start somewhere. You can't be afraid of that. You know I think that's what the, the thing I I really appreciate about your story of your career is that you've had like not just the sense to know when you know a field's getting kind of done, but also a total lack of fear about trying new things. I mean I think a lot of people are slowed down by the idea of you know, if this problem, the other people have been working on it. And so I'm new to it and maybe I don't know everything. So they get a little hesitant, but you haven't been bothered by that. And I think that sort of, um, you know, all the political stuff too, you have to have a certain amount of lack of fear, 
you know, and I don't know if you got that from it's that we're like middle aged white dudes, as you said, yeah. that it's just, you know, that it's just the privilege of that. Or if, you know, if it's your genetic and cultural thing from your dad of having, you know, been kind of a scientist from birth, you know, or I don't know if it's or if it's just but I mean, that's what to do new things. You can't yeah. be too afraid of it. You know, it has yeah. you can't like amateurish is good. Yeah. You know, and I, and I tell students that graduates that all the time. I say in 10 or 15 years, you're not going to be working on this. So you need to. You need to learn how to do research. If you know how to do research, you can do anything. That's really that's really the key is is know how to how to come up with hypotheses, read the literature, do stuff like that. So hopefully, yeah, I mean, hopefully this will work out for me. Um, I think there's a lot of data that nobody's really looked at with regard to these questions. There's a huge amount of data out there, just yeah. uh, m- mountains of data that you can download, and and it's really exciting. I mean, I'm having a gr- I'm having a great time. Oh, that's good to hear it. So we covered a lot of things. Is there anything else we should be talking about that, that I didn't think of? Any other? Um, not really, I don't think. I mean, the other thing I'm sort of thinking about doing is writing, is trying to write sort of a more popular book. So I've, I've written a bunch of textbooks, but I, I'm thinking about writing a more popular book. I'm sort of weighing the pros and cons of that. But you, know, you were sort of asking the question about how do you break the deadlock? And I, and I wouldn't be presumptuous enough to say if I write a book, it'll break the deadlock. But you know, it will add, try to add to the public discussion. Yeah. You know, I try to do that with my Twitter feed a little bit. Um, a book would be another way to do that. And, you know, once you write a book, then that gets you sort of entree to become a public intellectual on the yeah. issue. And then you have sort of a slightly higher profile. So I'm sort of thinking about doing that. Yeah. That would be quite an investment. I don't know if I want to do that. But yeah. I'm sort of at that stage of my career. You know, I, yeah. I think... I could see kind of the end of my hardcore research career coming up. There are too many smart young people that I really can't compete with. And so um, I'm sort of thinking, you know, maybe that's the next stage of my my career. I never thought I would say that. I always thought, oh, I'm going to do research until I'm 85. But you you do. I do feel myself beginning to kind of slow down on the proposal writing, responding to reviewers that yeah. that aspect I, I don't know what will happen we'll see maybe i'll get a second wind with all of this impact stuff and so all the young you know so there i think there are my sense is that because i've asked people a lot of people from doing this podcast i've asked a lot of people about how they got into the field and then what that has to do with their social consciousness over climate and i think for most of us and it sounds like you're similar like we didn't get into it out of social consciousness over climate maybe that was a minor factor but but then a lot of us have become more and more engaged in it over time and thinking about how to respond to that in our, you know, in our work. No, but, I mean, I can tell you precisely that it was tropospheric water vapor feedback. I thought, well, I can use all this stuff I already know right. and I can move in this. So this problem seems, you know, that that was really the primary reason to move into it. And the social consciousness really came later. I think right. I didn't appreciate how bad it was going to be until m- much re- more recently. Right. I think you and I are typical in that. And so what I'm getting at is I think this has changed for the generation coming in now. Like I think only in the last pretty recently, because I think even, you know, my students who are like a, a few years ago who were in their 30s were more like me and you than they are. But the newest generations, I think, are really I- much more idealistic and coming into climate because they're concerned about it to a greater extent than the older generations did. And so I think it's this, a weird dissonance because they kind of look to us for guidance, but in some sense, we don't really know how, you know, if they want to know how to orient their careers to have an impact. And we've just kind of blundered into it at yeah. best, you know, and don't. And, and so 
I just wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Like, do people ask you for advice? Like, well, you know, how should I? Yeah, I get a lot of advice from undergrads uh, who are interested in the climate problem and they want to know, you know, what what should they do? And so, you know, and it's it's hard to give people advice if, you know, their goals, they want to solve the problem. Um, you know, you mentioned these students are idealistic and I think, yeah, we'll, we'll beat that out of them. Uh, <laughs> a few, few years of, of working in the field. And well, I mean, one question is, should you be a scientist if you really want to concerned about solving the climate problem is science of a vibe, you know, I mean, you know, I think for, uh, for us, I think the fact that we're scientists gives us more credibility in the debate and we can say things that people take more seriously because we understand right. the science much more than uh, someone who doesn't. But is there a risk that, you know, now that climate is a completely political problem that many people should have, a, you know, there should be many voices on it. Do you think there's a risk that having scientists be um, very visible runs the risk of like sort of keeping it on the science page, you know, in other words, almost prolonging the scientific debate past where it should be just because by virtue of having a scientist talking, it's like bringing up the issue of is it real or is it not, even if we don't think that's a real. Yeah, I mean, I guess as a, as a scientist, I try not to engage in sort of those debates, right? You know, the debate, you know, is it real? Is it not? Is it caused by humans? But I think science to the extent the science can point out things, you know, there's a lot of discussion at this meeting and it, I guess there must've been a press conference here about the, one of the glaciers. Uh, I, I won't even try to pronounce it. It's the Thwaites glacier. Yeah, that's I, how I would say I'm, it. But yeah. yeah. I, I, my apologies <laughs> to any prior people are listening to that. So, you know, I, I think that science really can do a great deal of good by pointing out these risks yeah. that people may not see otherwise. And so I yeah. think there is, and that that's extremely important and very influential. And, and so I think, I think that there's a lot of roles that science can do. Science can point and pointing out the risks. I think at this point is probably the most important thing that we can do. Cause I think there, I think there are these looming catastrophes in, in asset values. You know, the thing I worry about a lot is what they call stranded assets. This idea oh, that yeah. you own an asset that is actually worth much less than you think it is. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of stranded assets. I think there are a lot of people whose 401ks are not worth what they think it is because they're invested in things that are going to lose value. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to retirement time, what are they going to retire on? And, and, you know, people who own houses that aren't worth what they think they are, mm. people that, I mean, it's just, it's, it's going to be a huge problem that I really worry is going to be economically devastating. And so I think warning people of these risks is really the important role at this point that science can play. Not hopefully we're not arguing about whether it's real or you know yeah. whether you can believe the surface thermometer record. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we covered it. I think we did. Yes. All right. Well, thanks so much for doing this, Andy. Oh, great uh, talking to you. to you. It was it was my pleasure, Adam. And uh, live we'll, from AGU. Yeah, we'll do it again. In <laughs> we'll do it again in twenty years, and I can update you on all okay. the stuff all I've right. done. All right. We've done since then. All right. Thanks. Signing off. Live from AGU. All right. Okay. As Andy says, warning people of the risks is really the important role at this point that science can play, not arguing about whether it's real or whether you can believe the surface thermometer record. Such a pleasure to talk to Andy Dessler in person at AGU, December 2021. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli, and our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, 
where our editor and post-producer is Stefan Wiener, and our audio engineer is Livia Wicks. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.